My name is Steve. I'm uh, honored and humbled to be with, here, uh, with you guys tonight. I'd like to start off tonight with a, uh, with a survey. Okay, so just an in-house survey, nothing crazy, but I want you to raise your hand. Raise your hand for me if you own a cell phone. Okay, this is not helping my argument with my 14-year-old. He says he's the only one on the planet without a cell phone. But keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Okay, now I only want you to put your hand down. Only put your hand down if you've actually spoken today to another person on your cell phone. Well, not many people put their hands down. That's actually surprising. All right, you can put your hands down. So I read a, uh, I read a survey as I was preparing for this tonight. The survey, uh, it talked to 500 different people between the ages of 18 and 34, and it asked them a question. It said, would you rather have A, a cell phone that only sends text messages, or B, a cell phone that only makes phone calls? So who do you, who, how many people think that A was the predominant answer? Who thinks it was B? Does anyone think it was B? A couple people. It was actually A. It was 75% of the people surveyed, three out of every four, said that they would prefer a phone that only sent text messages. Now, that wasn't the interesting part to me, though. The interesting part of the survey was the same 500 people were asked which communication they thought was more personal and more meaningful. Okay, 81% of them said they thought that speaking to somebody was more personal and more meaningful. Okay, that was the part that was interesting to me. Now, you might be asking yourselves, what does that have to do with the study tonight, Steve? And the answer is it doesn't have anything to do with the study tonight, okay? I thought it was interesting, but it, I guess it does have one thing to do with the study tonight. I would not be here talking tonight if it wasn't for a phone call that I received. I got a phone call. My phone rang the other day in my pocket. I pulled it out. I was so happy. Like, someone's calling me. It's not a robocaller. And you know who it was? It was Francel. Okay, and I answered my phone, and I was like, hey, Francel. Francel has called me, I think, once in my whole life. Okay, so this, I was like, man, this must be a big thing. So I start talking to Francel, and he's kind of going through the pleasantries. And then uh, he says, hey, Steve, hey, what would you think about maybe doing some teaching for us on Wednesday nights? And I said, well, yeah, okay, I think I could probably do that. I'm, I'm honored you would ask. I think I could maybe do that. And then he started honing in. Francel's pretty crafty, right? He starts honing in, and he says, what would you think about teaching out of the book of Matthew? And then I realized he was starting to be, he was starting to be serious about this. And so I, I backed off a little bit, and I said, whoa, whoa, Francel, I'm not sure. I said, you're not going to ask me to teach all that hard stuff about murder and adultery and divorce. You're not asking me to do that, right? And he goes, no, 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 no. I already tricked Chad into doing that last week. <laughs> so um, so I, was, uh, I was happy that that wasn't the case. He said, he, said, he said, here's the thing, though, Steve. I'm only going to ask you to teach some of the easy stuff, the easy stuff like loving those that are your enemy, okay, not swearing to God. I'm going to ask you to teach all of that, all of that stuff, too. And I said, well, um, I'm going to need to pray pretty hard about that, Francel. And Francel could see I was starting to get a, a little nervous. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, Steve, take all the time that you need to prepare for this study. I'll help you. I just need you to have it by Wednesday night. <laughs> so here I am. So my challenge to you this week, before we get started on the study, my challenge to you is sometime this week, when you're going to communicate with somebody, and it's going to be personal or meaningful, I want you to call them. Call them instead of sending, instead of sending them a text, unless, unless it's Francel. Because if you call Francel, you might be up here next Wednesday. All right? Please bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, now we're so thankful for these Wednesday night services. We'll thank the Lord for the ability to walk away from the world in the middle of the week, away from the rigors of our jobs, away from the drama of our lives, away from the narrative of the enemy and into this sanctuary, this oasis, Lord, that's separate and apart from this world, this room that's filled with fellow believers, immersed in your Holy Spirit, where we can gather and open your word. You're inspired inerrant, infallible word, your word that you breathed into existence, Lord, your word that is living, 
and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword because we know that your word is the best discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. We pray, Lord, that tonight your Holy Spirit will surround and embrace every one of us here and help us not just to understand your word, but also to apply it in each of our lives in furtherance of our ultimate purpose here on this planet, Lord, which is to know you and to make you known to those around us. We ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so tonight we're going to start right where Chad left off last week. We're going to start in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. For you note takers, tonight's study is going to focus on Matthew, chapter 5, verses 33 through 48. Uh, But before we get into that, I want to give a little context about what's happening here in the chapter. A good habit that I got into when I started reading the Bible in larger volumes uh, was to remind myself of this simple phrase. And if you're someone who's new to reading God's Word, if it's something that you struggle with, this is something that a lot of you might do intuitively anyway, but if you're someone that's new to this, you might want to write this phrase down. And the phrase is this. It's pithy and it's interesting. There are no verses in the Bible. There are no verses in the Bible. I'm already getting some kind of crooked heads over here. They're like, what are you talking about? I got my Bible right here in front of me. I can look right right here, Steve, and there's verses and there's chapters and there's all of that right there. What I mean when I say that is that's not how the Bible was written. The Bible wasn't written with chapters and verses. That was something that was added 1,500 years later. Okay, when we were trying to make sense out of this thing, right, we're trying to figure out where stuff is. We're trying to refer to verses to talk to each other, and it was difficult, so we added those in later. Just like when you write a letter to your friend, you don't start off, Dear Francel, chapter 1, there I was, chapter 2, verse 3. You don't do that when you write a letter, just like Paul didn't do it when he wrote his letters, just like Matthew didn't do it when he was, when he was writing. Um, can you imagine? Can you even imagine? I had, I had this thought as I was preparing for this, how hard it was for the early scholars to reference the Bible. Hey, hey, Francel, hey, do you have that, do you have that one that Matthew wrote? Yeah, do you have the piece of papyrus, like maybe five, six hundred down in your stack, the one about the Sermon on the Mount? Hold on, let me look through that and try to figure that out. It must have been really, really difficult. So what a blessing it is to have chapters and verses and page numbers, amen? Now, why do I bring this up? Because it's important to have context before we read God's Word. You can't just take a toilet paper tube and look at one little verse out of a book and then then expect to understand what that means. You have to look at the entire Uh, the entire totality of the circumstances, I would call it. So uh, my wife and Allie, my wife Allie and I have been married for 21 years. It was a uh, temporary lapse of judgment on her part (laughs) back a while ago. I think she regrets it most days. We've got four kids, James, Matthew, Justin, and Jillian. They're 19, 16, 14, and 11. And when I talk to our kids about this, this, uh, this context, right, the idea of context, I use the term the five W's. Okay, the five W's. And you guys know what those are, right? Who, what, when, where, and why. It's the simple investigator questions. Who, what, when, where, why. So as we sit down to read from the book of Matthew, I want to answer those questions before we get started so we have a good understanding of what it is that we're talking about. So let's start with who. The book of Matthew okay, was written by... This is the interactive portion of the... Matthew. Okay, it's written by Matthew. But Matthew's not the one that's talking, right? It's Jesus is talking. And who is Jesus talking to? In this chapter, he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to those who are following him. So who, what? What is this? This is, like we've been talking about every Wednesday night, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the famous Sermon on the Mount. It started with the Beatitudes a few weeks ago. You guys remember that? Those were the the nine statements that begin with, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, the poor in spirit. Jesus has already given the salt and the light speech. Okay, So he's continuing on with his Sermon on the Mount uh, speech to his believers. So who, what, when. Okay, with Jesus, it's pretty easy, right? Because Jesus, 
He was only on the planet for 33 years, right? So his time, if it's Jesus talking, it's only a real focused time that we could be talking about. So most of the scholars put this at somewhere in the 26 to the 30 AD range. So maybe it's not quite as relevant with Jesus, but it is relevant when you start talking about other sections of the Bible, right? When you read, he was pierced for our transgressions, and you realize that was written 900 years before Jesus, you go, wow, that's actually pretty compelling, right? It's something that was written from the book of Isaiah. Okay, so who, what, when? Where? Where does the Sermon on the Mount happen? It happens on the Mount, right? Where's the Mount? Uh, I've not been to Israel. Maybe show of hands who's been to Israel. I know a lot of you guys have. I've read that they think the sermon, that the Mount is actually north of the Sea of Galilee. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if anyone has been to a spot that I, I read about called the, uh, the Mount of Beatitudes, I guess is what it's called now. So northern Israel. So who, what, when, where? And then this last one is probably the most important question, which is why. Why is Jesus talking to his followers at this point. Chad hit this well last week. I'm going to hit it again. Jesus is starting the process of explaining to his believers that he's not coming to refute the laws of the Old Testament. He's coming to fulfill the laws of the New Testament. He's coming to to announce that, announce his new covenant, that he's coming as part of one unified plan, God's unified plan, okay, for the world. And, that's, and the way he's going to do that through this section of the book in Matthew, Chad hit this as well last week, is he's going to use these phrases that, that are called antitheses, and they have a pattern to them. They start with, you have heard that it was said, and then they're followed with Jesus dropping the hammer, but I say to you, and he, he lays out his piece of it, okay? Chad hit the first three of these last week regarding murder, adultery, and marriage and divorce, and I'm going to hit the last three tonight. So again, for you note-takers... Uh, I'm going to break this, sec- this study up into three sections. Sections one, two, and three. One will be oaths, two will be eyes, and three will be enemies. So oaths, eyes, and enemies. I don't typically title my messages because I have not given a message before. So I'll just leave it at that. All right, so what is an oath? Section one, oaths. This is going to focus on verses 33 through 37. So what is an oath? I went to the dictionary, which I don't know if you can even trust the dictionaries nowadays. Some of them you can. But I went to the dictionary. The dictionary dictionary lists an oath as a solemn attestation of the truth of one's words or the sincerity of one's intentions, a solemn promise, a solemn promise. So as I read that, I thought about, do you guys, this is going to date me because I'm an old guy. You guys remember that movie from the mid-90s, Jerry Maguire? You remember, right? Tom Cruise, he's the slick sports agent, and he has the epiphany in the, in the beginning about, uh, you know, hey, they're doing it wrong at my place. They're unethical, and he writes a mission statement about how he's going to do it differently. He's going to be honest, and he loses all of his clients, right? His clients are running, running to the hills, and he's trying to keep all of his clients. And so there's a, there's a scene in the beginning where he sits down with the big quarterback, Cush, right? He's going to talk to Cush. He's trying to get Cush to stay with him, and he's talking to Cush's dad, and he's trying to get him to sign, right? The big decision is, is he going to stay with Jerry or is he going to go with the big firm? And he decides to stay with Jerry. And he reaches out his hand, right? And he shakes, he shakes uh, Jerry's hand and he says, I don't do contracts, but I'll give you my word. And my word is stronger than oak, right? My word is stronger than oak. And Jerry believes him, right? Because he took an oath. He made an oath to him. So let's read what Jesus says about that. Matthew 5, chapter 33. Matthew 5, 33. Again... You have heard that it was said, okay, this is the beginning of the antithesis statement, right? Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, there's the second part, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, for whatever is more than that is from the evil one. So what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying here, don't make promises? No, that's not what he's saying. The phrases that Jesus is talking about, phrases maybe that you've heard, maybe phrases that you've said, he's talking about phrases like, I swear to God, right? I swear on my grandmother's grave. You're trying to convince somebody that the thing you're saying is true or that you're going to do the thing you're going to do and they don't believe you. And you say, no, no, I'm going to do it, man. I swear to heaven. I swear to something like that. That is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about those types of phrases where people take an item or a person or a concept that's important to them and then they attach it to their ability to perform this claim. They say, I'm going to attach this thing to the sincerity of my claim. Jesus is making it clear that you shouldn't qualify your promises by attaching them to holy things. I'm going to put an asterisk next to holy. I'm going to go back to that in a minute. That you don't have any control over. Okay, he's making it clear that you shouldn't call for the destruction of an object just because your oath is broken. In other words, when you make a promise to somebody, it's not God's responsibility that you keep that promise. It's not your grandmother's grave's responsibility that you keep that promise. The balance of the earth doesn't rest on whether or not you keep your promise. It's your responsibility to keep your promise, right? It's my responsibility to keep my promise. You guys that were here on Sunday heard Pastor Ed talk. He talked about the difference between something being simplistic and something being simple, if you guys remember that. I like that. I say it a different way. I say the difference between being simple and being easy, okay? There's a difference between something being simple and something being easy. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He goes, hey, guys, this is really, this is really simple. Just let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Simple, right, but not easy. So what happens in the Jerry Maguire example? Well, we know what happens, right? He, goes, he reneges on his word. Uh, Jerry is devastated. Clearly the dad in the, in the story, his yes was not yes. But I thought about this as this was going on. I thought, could you imagine, could you imagine a world where that was actually the case, where people actually followed Jesus' teachings and let their yes be yes? Do you know how much less paperwork we'd have to sign? You guys want to buy this house? You got to sign this big stack of paperwork. No, I don't, man. I'm a Matthew 537 guy. I let my yes be yes. I know that I'm in an earthquake area. We're good. Tell the notary to go home. If you're a lover of the environment, okay, recycling cans is cool, but start pushing Matthew 537. It's save a rainforest by the end of the year. All right. Now, I know here's, this is this. I love this part. Okay. There are some clever folks out here. And I know I thought this. My brain thought of this. And I'm sure some people here have thought of it. Some folks online have thought of this. They said, yeah, but, but Steve, Jesus was talking about holy things. Okay, he's talking about holy things. Of course, I don't have control over heaven. I don't have control over earth. I don't have those things, right? So I can swear on things that I have control over. What about the things that, that I provide? Is that possible? Did Jesus address this? Oh, you bet he did. I'm going to move real quick to Matthew chapter 23. I'm just going to take a quick detour out of Matthew 5 because I just think this is so good. I'm going to read real quick from Matthew 23, verse 16, because guess what? The scribes and the Pharisees thought the same thing. They thought that they could skirt around the law. They thought they could, they could take Jesus' word and they could twist it just a little bit. Here's what, here's what the, this is Jesus talking. This is, this is one of those moments, if I had a DeLorean and 1.21 gigawatts, and I could just go right back, right? You could you know, pipe it into the thing and go right back and put on your little Pharisee outfit and just sit in the crowd and listen. I would just be, I would be amazed to sit and listen to Jesus just thunder away at the scribes and the Pharisees like he does here in Matthew 23, verse 16. He says, Woe to you, blind guides, 
who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold in the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Okay, in other words, you guys are saying like, look, Jesus, I get it. I get it. I'm not going to swear by the temple. I would never do that. But I'm going to swear by the gold that I put in there. And Jesus' response, he doesn't mince any words. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And he goes on. He says, and whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Okay, once again, the scribes and the Pharisees are saying, look, Jesus, we're not, we're not going to swear by the altar. We're not going to violate your rule by saying that. But the sacrifice that we put on the altar, that's kind of ours, right? Like we put that on there? Uh, Jesus doesn't think so. He responds again. This is in verse 19, 23 and 19. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He's not exactly mincing any words here. Woe to you, scribes and, and, and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the, other un, the others undone. And then he hammers it home in verse 24. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Wow. Okay. Redefining terms to fit our desires? I don't think so. But does any of this sound familiar? This happens every day around here. I remember when I think my son James, well, it's funny. When my kids found out I was teaching tonight, they're like, oh, my gosh. They're like, Dad's going to have the microphone. He can say whatever he wants, okay? <laughs> so I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. So my son, my son James was probably six, I think five, six years old, and my son Matthew, who was a couple years younger than them. You know, we, you guys, anyone have boys that fight? It happens once in a while, right? Boys fight still. And they're in the other room, and I hear the thing, and they come in, and Matthew's saying, Dad, Dad, James is kicking me. James is kicking me. Make him stop. Make him stop. So we have the talk with James. James, you can't kick your brother. Okay? You can't hurt your brother. We can't have you doing that. Can you please stop? James says yes. We think we've made some progress, and they go away. And you guys know what happens, right? Five minutes later, he's kicking him again. And they come back in, and I go, what is going on? James is still kicking me, Dad. He doesn't stop. I go, James, are you still kicking Matthew? He goes, Dad, Dad, I'm not. I'm actually not kicking Matthew, okay? I'm, I'm accelerating my foot at like a fast rate, and I'm impacting him kind of with my shin, like the upper part. It's not really kicking, right? I'm not swearing by the altar, Jesus. I'm just swearing by the gold that's on the altar. He's changing the terms in his mind like he thought he was justified with that. I'm not trying to bag on him. That's all of us, right? That's, that's the world that we live in. You can't go in that bathroom. You're not a woman. Yes, I am. What are you talking about? That's how I define myself. Are you going to change reality to fit your feelings? Right? Are you going to change your feelings to fit reality? I read the last verse too, and I just I couldn't help but let this one go. Those who, where he says, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. I was at Home Depot the other day trying to buy light bulbs. You can't buy incandescent light bulbs anymore. Do you guys know this? It was August 1st, so just a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, they're banned. They're illegal. Like the one that Thomas Edison invented. You can't buy them anymore. They're illegal. So it's been legislated. The government has come down and said, we're not going to allow you guys to buy light bulbs anymore because they're just too dangerous. They're just too 
energy inefficient. If you're 16 years old and you're pregnant and you want to travel to another state and have an abortion, you can do that. That's fine. But you can't buy the light bulb. If that's not straining out a gnat to swallow a camel, I don't know what it is. All right. So that's section one. Moving on to section two. So this is, the, this is uh, section two, which is going to be verses 38 through 42. I titled this section Eyes because of the familiar eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth that we're all aware of. I know he talks about turn the other cheek later. My kid said, why didn't you title it cheeks? I said, I didn't want people to get the wrong idea. So this, this section focuses on retaliation as it was outlined in the Old Testament, eye for an eye. It was a legal precedent, right, that was set back in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy to help settle disputes between individuals, to make things fair, right, to make things even. But you'll see quickly that Jesus raises the bar during this by cutting to the heart of the law, to the spirit of the law, not just the legalities and the letter of the law. So let's read from Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42. So Matthew 5, verse 38, you have heard that it was said, so this is another one of the antitheses, this is the, five, the fifth of six antitheses, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So that was, that's a lot to unpack. Okay, so let's just take it one, one claim at a time. These first two verses, uh, 38 and 39, you heard the pattern, right? You have heard that it was said, and then followed by, but I tell you. Uh, one thing I should have hit earlier, I don't know why I didn't hit this earlier. Note that the text does not say, God said... And I say, right, this isn't Jesus versus God. This isn't God said this and Jesus said that. Okay, it's also not, Jesus says this many times in other parts of Scripture. He says, for it is written. He doesn't say that here, though, right? He doesn't say, for it is written. He says, for you have heard that it was said. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus is calling into question the oral traditions of the, of the Pharisees and the scribes and the other teachers of the law. It's an important distinction because Jesus isn't saying there's a problem with the law itself. Because remember, he's not coming to abolish the Old Testament law. He's coming to fulfill the Old Testament law. So eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was supposed to be a guideline for the courts. That's what they brought it up for. I used to work in uh, federal law enforcement. And that's, this is actually still how they do it today. They, if you commit an offense, a federal offense, and you're, you've been found guilty... There are sentencing guidelines that the judge has to look at. It's a, it's a document that you can Google. You can go online and you can find it. And it says, hey, if you did these things, here's how much time you get to spend in prison. Okay, that's all this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth stuff was for. It was just a guideline, a principle. But what people were doing with it is they were using it as an excuse for retaliation, an excuse to get even with people, right? He took my eye, therefore I get, I get to go take his eye. The law says so right here, right? Justified payback. I can get revenge anytime I want. Because the law says so. Okay, but Jesus comes in and says, oh, that's not how we're going to do it. He says, I tell you, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Wow. So is Jesus saying you can't defend yourself? Is he saying self-defense is off limits? If I'm getting a Slurpee in 7-Eleven later tonight and a guy punches me in the face, I should say, hold on, punch me on the other side too. Is that what Jesus is saying? 
That is not what he's saying. I want to put that to bed first, and then, then we'll go back. Because when I first read this and I started studying this, there are a lot of people out there that are teaching, oh, yeah, yeah, be a pacifist. Jesus says no self-defense. But this goes back to the context argument that I made earlier, right? If we're just looking at this one verse right in Matthew, or even if we back out a little and say we're just going to look at the whole book of Matthew, you actually have to take a bigger step back and look at the entire Bible to figure this one out, right? You have to say, well, what, what does Jesus actually say? What does the Lord's word, God's word say about self-defense? And there are a myriad of verses you could go to to find this. So I just picked a couple so that we could give it some context. Psalm 144, verse 1. This is David, right? Psalm of David. He says, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my, finger, my fingers for battle. Not exactly the manifesto of a pacifist. Okay. Another section, this is Romans chapter 13. This is Paul talking. Okay. This is going to be chapter 13, verse 4. Paul's talking to the governing authorities of Rome um, in his letter. He's explaining how government authorities are appointed by God and that we should obey them. And he says this in Romans 13, 4. He says, but if you do evil, be afraid. For he who does not bear the sword in vain... For his is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on anyone he wants. Is that what he says? It's not what he says. He doesn't say execute wrath on anyone he wants. He says execute wrath on him who practices evil, right? This is self-defense. I tried to trick you there. It didn't really work. I was hoping for a better reaction on that one. But you see my point, right? God is being very clear in, in Romans that if you have to defend yourself, that is okay. Paul doesn't say execute wrath on the innocent, execute wrath on anyone you feel like. He says execute wrath on him who practices evil. Because here's the bottom line. We live in a fallen world. We know that. Evil's all around us. I would go as far as to say it's against Scripture not to step in and defend life. Not to defend life. Your own or someone else's when you see an injustice taking place. So what is all of this turn the other cheek business. What does that actually mean? Well, I read, I read, and I actually, I spent some time in, in Afghanistan, in the Middle East, and I remember when we went there, uh, they briefed us. They said, hey, just so you understand, the indigenous people here, when you're going to interact with them, they use their left hand for, for dirty things, okay? They use their left hand to, to, to wipe themselves, right, like after they've gone to the bathroom. So don't touch anybody's left hand. And believe me, that stuck with me. I was like, I'm not touching anybody's left hand when I'm over here. Uh, why do I bring that up? Because it was a right-handed culture. When people would slap each other, they would use their right hand typically. Okay, and if you think about how are you going to smack somebody in the right cheek if you're using your right hand? Maybe I could just get one uh, volunteer up here real quick. <laughs> you have to hit them with the back of your hand, right? It's a backhanded slap in the face if you're going to hit somebody on their right cheek. Why is that relevant? Uh, I actually read this from the notes section of my Bible. Who loves the notes section of their study Bible? I will tell you, this is not a joke. This is not a joke. When I'm reading other books and I don't understand something, I literally look to see where the notes are. There aren't notes in the other books, but I look for them because I get so used to getting good nuggets out of the notes section of my Bible. The notes section of my Bible in this was explaining that a backhanded slap is actually more offensive. It's, more, it's, it's a bigger insult to slap somebody backhanded than it is to have an open palm slap. It's a higher Offense, And that's why Jesus was using it. He was saying, look, even the higher offense, even if somebody smacks you on the right cheek with the back of their hand, I still don't want you to seek vengeance on that person. He's not saying don't defend yourself, but he's saying I don't want you to seek revenge on someone who does that. 
All right, so let's keep moving. Let's go. So section, uh, we're still in uh, verse 40 is where we're going to pick right up. We've already read this, but we're going to read it again. This is about the tunic and the cloak. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. I checked uh, my wardrobe before I came here. I don't have a tunic and I don't have a cloak. I actually had to look it up. I'm like, I'm not really sure exactly what a tunic is. I don't know. Is anyone wearing a tunic tonight? No. Um, in, in Steve Bush's wardrobe terms, my tunic is basically my Kirkland t-shirt, okay? It's like my undergarment. It's the one that you get six of them for $14.99, and you, you, you pick up the package, and you're like, there can't be six shirts in here. There can't be. But they are. They vacuum seal them in there, and they're really tight. It's, it's my cheap undergarment, okay? So if anyone wants to sue me and take away my Kirkland t-shirt, my cheap Kirkland t-shirt, I should let him have my brand new Gore-Tex outdoor research jacket that's got that super astronaut insulation and it, it keeps me you know, warm when it's 10 below outside. I don't know, I'm not gonna give that thing up. That thing's amazing. But that's what they're saying, right? In other words, if someone wants to take away your cheap thing, then you should give them your expensive thing. Tunics were frequently used back then to barter and make payments, so it wasn't that unusual that you would take someone's tunic in a lawsuit, but the cloak was off limits. Okay, even the courts would not allow the cloak to be taken because it was just too valuable of a piece of clothing for somebody. Some of the homeless, homeless guys would use it as their blanket. Right? It was what they kept warm with uh, when they were outside. And so this is just Jesus raising the bar yet again to his disciples, saying, I want you to voluntary, voluntarily give up something that is just that valuable. So once again, the basic premise is, if someone wants to take something value for, valuable from you, then you need to give them something more valuable. It was about maybe, maybe a year ago, um, my son Justin, I bought, I bought him a new bike. My wife and I bought him a new bike. It was great. It was a really nice bike. But he had an old bike that we wanted to get rid of that was still a really nice bike. And so what do you do with old bikes that are nice? You put new tires on them, right? You polish them up really nice, and then you put them on offer up, right, so that you could sell them to somebody. And so we had done that. We took his bike, and we put it out in our front yard because there were some people that were going to come by and check it out off of offer up. And I kid you not, that bike was out there for maybe an hour. And this dude shows up, okay, he's, he's got black pants on, he's got a black shirt on, he's got a black hat on, he had a black face mask on because he, doesn't, he didn't want anybody to get sick while he was stealing my son's bike. And he, he just helps himself, like he walks, I know this because we have a security camera in, in the front of our house, and he just walks up, he sees the bike, he grabs it, and he takes off, okay? he just takes off down the street. So I run in, I grab my keys to my truck, and I go running out, and I said, hey man, if you're going to take the bike, take my truck too. And so he came back, and he took my truck, and yeah, that's not what happened, right? It's true. That story's true up until the part where I grabbed the keys. But when I ran out the door, I was not running out the door to give him my truck. I was running out the door to put this guy in a headlock. Like, I was running out. I'm like, I'm going to find this dude. I'm going to go to all his little tweaker hangouts, and I'm going to find out where he is. And I was mad. I was mad, okay? I was angry. And I'm driving around, like, 15, 20 minutes. I can't find this guy. I checked everywhere. I couldn't find him. I come back, and my, and my son and I are like, let's get one of those Apple AirTags, and we'll put it on another bike, and we'll let, it, let him come back and steal that one, and then we'll go. I mean, I was just, I was losing my mind. Okay, but this simple story about my son's bike is indicative of the difficulty in adhering to Jesus' teachings. It's against our fallen nature to want to do that. It's against our nature to want to give something to somebody who's taken from us especially something that's more valuable. It's such a good reminder that sin, okay, and the capability to sin, it's inside every one of us, all of us. I've heard it described, I don't know who said this, if it was one of you, I apologize, I'm not trying to steal this from you. 
I've heard it described that sin is kind of like toothpaste, right? And it's in a tube, and when you squeeze it just right, it comes out. And when you squeeze it just right, it comes out, and it's, it goes everywhere, right? And it makes a mess. And you can't put it back in. You can't hide it. This is why Jesus challenges his disciples here in Matthew chapter 5 to break the mold, right? Instead of justifying your retribution with an eye for an eye, give somebody something that's radical that they don't deserve, just like Christ did for each one of us. Amen? You guys, um, I, went to, I went to college in New York. I had never been to New York before, um, before I went to college there. And everyone from New York could not believe that. They're like, how have you lived 18 years on this planet and you've never been to New York? The first thing they said I had to do was like, you have to go to Broadway. You got to go see a play. And so they took me to see a play called Les Miserables. Have you guys ever seen that play? Such a wonderful play. If you haven't seen it, you should go see it. The main character is a guy named Jean Valjean. He was a prisoner. Prisoner 24601, for those of you that have seen it. I don't know why I remember that. He just spent 19 years in prison, and he gets released. He gets released from prison. He goes and he tries to stay at one of the local inns, and they won't keep him. They kick him out. And so he finds a bench, and he, and he just tries to fall asleep on the bench. The bench is outside of the bishop's house. Okay? And the bishop walks outside, and he sees him sleeping there. And he says, hey, man, why don't you come on inside? Come in the house. I got a warm bed for you. I got some bread for you. I got some wine for you. Brother, take a load off. Okay, come on in. And he treats him differently than he's ever been treated. But those of you that have seen it knows what ha know what happens. In the middle of the night, Jean Valjean wakes up. He realizes the bishop isn't paying attention. He grabs a whole bunch of his silver and he leaves. He steals it. He leaves in the middle of the night. The bishop, of course, wakes up. Jean Valjean is gone. The silver is gone. And the constables, the cops, they find Jean Valjean down the street. They hook him up, they bring him back, and they march him right in front of the bishop, and they say, hey, we got the guy. This is the criminal that got released the other day, and uh, we've got him right here with your silver. And this is what the bishop says to Jean Valjean, and I'm going to quote. He comes walking out, and he's holding two, two candlesticks, two silver candlesticks in his hands, and he says, but my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind, and he extends the candlesticks out. You forgot I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? So the cops are shocked. He says, yeah, basically the, the, the bishop is like, look, I gave that stuff to him. He didn't steal it. I gave it to him, and now I'm giving him the rest of the set. And the cops walk away. They're shocked. And then he, the bishop says this to Jean Valjean, and this is the part that ties right in with, with this scripture. He says, and remember this, my brother, see in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, capital P, capital B, God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. That's radical grace. I know it's fictitious, right? I know it's Broadway, but it's a great example. It's a great example that supports the scripture. All right, so section two finishes. There's two, two other verses left here in my section two. And these last ones are, uh, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks for you and from him who wants to borrow from you. Do not turn away. So Jesus just continues to raise the bar, challenging his disciples to give more and serve more, especially for those in need. All right, now we're going to move to the hard section, right? This is the, this is the, 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 the big one. Loving your enemies. So this is going to be section three. We've already done section one, oaths. We've done section two, eyes. Now we're going to hit section three, which is enemies, verse 43 through 48. Uh, so we're going to start right here in, in uh, verse 43. 
Once again, Jesus talking. You have heard that it was said, right? This is the sixth of six antitheses. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. All right, Jesus, stop. Stop. No, 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 no. Do good to those who hate you. All right, I've heard enough. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren, only what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. All right, Jesus, now you've gone too far, right? Be perfect? I can't do that. I can't be perfect. Love my enemies? I certainly can't do that. Speaking of enemies, have any of you guys been to the DMV lately? If you work for the DMV, I'm so sorry. We bought, my son Matthew bought a car the other day, um, and it was, we got a great deal on this car, right? It had a broken transmission, and the guy was asking a bunch of money. We bargained him way, way down. We got a really cheap price. My son James found a transmission. He fixed it. He made it work. And we thought we were feeling pretty good about ourselves because we, we got this nice car for a really, really small amount of money. But there was something I forgot to do. I didn't check the VIN, right? If you're buying a car, if you're going to buy a used car from a private party, go online, check the VIN beforehand because there might be a mountain of fines waiting for you when you get to the DMV. Okay? So what happened for, for us, I'm a AAA guy, right? I went to AAA, tried to do the transfer of title. AAA said, can't do it. You got to go to the DMV because there's a problem with the title. I said, oh, that's not good. So then I, I, I had to psych myself up for this to go to the DMV. I literally, I prayed. I'm like, God, just, I haven't been to the DMV in a long time. Can you please help me get through this because this is going to be crazy. So I get there, I wait in the line. It, it's exactly what you think, right? It's 50 people long. I wait in line. I finally get in. They put me in the seat. I sit there and I wait until they call my number. I finally get up to the window. I walk up to the window, and there's this lady sitting there. This, this lady hates everyone, okay? She hates everyone. She hates me. She doesn't even know me, but she hates me. She's just angry at the world. And she, the last thing she wants to do is this transfer of title for me. And so I'm just like, oh, my gosh. And I hand it across the thing through the little COVID barrier to her, and she, she you know, starts reading it, and she's just like, you know, she's on her, on her laptop or on her desktop. She's like, oh, oh, geez. Oh, this is, this is terrible. Oh, this is horrible. All right, I'm just thinking, I don't know what she sees, but this is, this is going to be, be really, really bad. And she just starts, she's like, you know, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't have done this with your car. I go, well, just to be clear, this, it's been my car for like a day. Okay, like I, haven't, I didn't do anything with this car beforehand. And she's like, oh, well, back in 2021, you did this, and, and then you did this, and hold on, I'm going to hit print. And she hits print, and the printer just starts going, right? And it's, it's coming out, this big piece of paper. And she hands it to me, and I start looking at this, and the fines aren't that big, right? $50 here, $40 there, $26 there. But when there's like 40 of them, okay, $1,307, okay? $1,307 was the total at the bottom of this thing. I am... I'm, I, I'm keeping my calm, but inside I'm mad, right? Inside I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me right now? This is insane. And so I try to bargain with her, right? I go, is there anything we can do? Is there a form I can fill out? There... There's not, okay, there's nothing you can do. You're gonna pay this, this $1,300. And so then I said this, something reasonably close to this. I said, let me get this straight. Someone who doesn't even know me behaved inappropriately for years, years. They racked up a laundry list of offenses that they can't pay for themselves 
And you want me to step in and write the check and take their due punishment in, I, in my place? Who would do something like that? And this is about when God's like, you, you know my right-handed culture in heaven, Steve, right? Like he's about, bam, right? I mean, he says, he hit me as I'm sitting there at the window. I'm like, I'm like, oh, and it's like this calmness comes over me. Not that I'm psyched about, I did have to pay $1,307. I was not excited about that at all. But this calmness kind of came over me, which is just like, okay, God, I get it. I get it. I get it. Because that's me. I think as I was getting the last few syllables out of my mouth is when that hit me. Jesus would do something like that. And he did. Okay? Not just for your laundry list, but for my laundry list. Everyone's laundry list. So this final section of this is, just, is perfect. It's a perfect end to the sixth antithesis statements that Jesus is using to fulfill the law of Moses. And I just think it's wonderful. So uh, as we kind of get near the end here, I want to go back a little bit, actually. I want to re-hit something. This is going to be from Matthew 5, uh, 17 through 18. And the reason I want to bring this up is because this, this is the point, right? This is the whole point of this section of Scripture. So Matthew 5... Verses 17 through 18. This is Jesus talking still. This was earlier. He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until it is fulfilled. Okay, that's the point of this, right? Jesus didn't come to undo God's law. He came to fulfill God's law. And with each section of these six antitheses, okay, the ones that Chad went over last week, the ones that I've gone over today, the way I see it as I continue to read, the, read this is Jesus just continues to raise the bar. He just raises it higher and higher and higher and higher. The law says don't murder. I say be reconciled. Right? The law says don't commit adultery. I say be radically pure. This is Jesus, right? The law says a man can't divorce. I say be selfless in your marriage. The law says don't break your promises. I say be a truth teller, Jesus says. The law says eye for an eye. I say be a blessing to others. Okay, and then the last one, the law says hate your enemies. And Jesus says be like me. Be like Jesus. As I was doing my research uh, and my prep for this message tonight, I actually found on YouTube a, uh, uh, a message that Pastor Chuck gave. And it was, it was I'm going to guess, maybe early 2000, based on some of the subject matter that was in there. And I listened to it, and it was fantastic. But he said something. I want to quote him at the end. He taught on this exact passage, actually. And this was his quote. He said, if you interpret the law in such a way that you feel smug or self-righteous then you're interpreting it wrong. And that stuck with me because I think that's what a lot of us do. That's what I do. I'll say it again. If you interpret the law in such a way that you feel smug and self-righteous, you're interpreting it wrong. In other words, if you read this section of Matthew and you think to yourself, I've got that. I can do that. I can love my enemies every time. I can let my yes be yes and let my no be no every time. When someone steals my son's bike, I'll give him my truck, right? Every time. I can pray for those who spitefully use me and persecute me, even at the DMV, every time. In fact, I can be perfect, just as my Father in heaven is perfect. <laughs> it's laughable, right? It's, almost, it's hard to even say it, because as Pastor Chuck says, you're just wrong. 
You're just plain wrong. As human beings, our fallen nature prevents us from being able to accomplish this. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try. But if we could accomplish all of this on our own, it would negate our need for a Savior. But praise God that we have that Savior. And praise God that He will take our just punishment in our place. Praise God for sending His only Son down to this earth to become human and die on a cross, to pay the penalty for the long list of sins that we've committed, that I've committed. Because the Lord knows that the myth of the world pushing self-reliance is simply false. We can't do it on our own. None of us can. We must, we can, and we must seek God's help. Amen? All right. Willie, I'm going to ask you to come back up here. If you're still here, I think Willie was going to play a couple songs. I'm just going to, I'm going to pray us out here, guys, uh, before Willie comes up to play another couple songs. So if you guys would just bow your heads with me, please. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time tonight. We thank you for the ability to encounter you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its uncanny ability to convict us. We thank you for your word's capacity to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We thank you for working in our hearts to refine us. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will continue to come alongside of us, each and every one of us, and help us with the things that we cannot accomplish on our own as we sometimes think we can. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, through tonight's study that we cannot rely on ourselves. We cannot rely on the advice of the world and the teachers of this world. We must rely on you, Lord. We must continue to seek you in all that we do, every day, every hour, every minute. We read these words in the book of Matthew when we're reminded, Lord, of our shortcomings, all of us. We're guilty, and there's no provision for us to save ourselves. Our only Savior is your Son, Jesus Christ, who gives us grace freely to those who seek him. We're so thankful tonight, Lord, for your ultimate plan, your plan that started with the law of Moses and was fulfilled by your Son. We're thankful for the new covenant with each of us and your plan to bring all of us to the end of ourselves and to the foot of the cross. We're humbled, Lord, beyond humbled by all of that. Continue to fill us, Lord. Continue to teach us. Continue to bless us. We ask all this in your Son's name. Amen.